You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. If you don't have one, there is one in the pew in front of you. And if you have come armed only with a cell phone this morning, um, if it seems right and good to you to avoid distractions, you may use that Bible as well. And you can find Matthew chapter 7 on page 762 of that Bible. In the summer of 2002, before my wife and I were engaged and after I had graduated from college all that long ago, American Idol made its debut on television, and it was, by all accounts, an instant success. By connecting sort of personal stories from the people to the way in which Simon Cowell kind of carried his criticism and his sharpness of tongue to these spectacular fails of people who really shouldn't have ever been on television, being put on television to do embarrassing things. It became one of the sensations of the summer, and by 2004, it was easily the most popular show on television. It has waned in popularity recently, but it has a strong track record for successful careers in music. In the first 10 years of the show's running, The contestants of that show had over 340 number one billboard hits. In 2007, contestants on American Idol, either that year or years previous to that, made up a complete total of 2% of all, all record sales in the world, which is, that seems like a small percentage, but there's a lot of musicians in the world, and for them to make up 2% is considerable. At the end of the show's run on Fox in 2016, Idol contestants have sold more than 60 million albums in the U.S. They've got more than 80 platinum records, 95 gold records. Its participants have generated more than 450 Billboard number one hits, and they've sold more than 260 digital downloads of their songs. It is an absolute victory for that particular show, and there's one reason why that show made it, because we love to judge people. We love it. We love to watch people. We love to vote on them. We love to say, I like him. I don't like her. I hope she loses. I hope he wins. We like to be able to judge. The whole show is premised on not what is best by musicians' standards, not what is best by the judges' standards, but what is best by our standards. We are the judges. We love to judge others. We love to vote on what we love to judge. And it's not just music. We love to judge the merits of books and movies. We judge the Hall of Fame qualities of athletes. We judge everything. Therefore, it's all the more amazing how much we love to quote the passage that we are about to come to from the Gospel of Matthew. Judge not, lest ye be judged. We will critique, we'll pick apart deficiencies in a number of ways, but we strongly believe that certain judgments just ought not be made. On issues of morality, I mean, who truly knows what is right and wrong and good and, and, and knowledgeable and, and who can actually go through all of the ins and outs and all the intricacies of life? We shouldn't judge one another. This is especially keen on issues of sex and sexual morality. Now, what does it matter what we do behind closed doors? So long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, we just, we shouldn't judge. Isn't that what Jesus tells us? We might, well ask what Jesus is actually trying to tell us here. And we get the chance to do that this morning. The good news is, as always, Jesus is incredibly helpful in leading us down the right paths. So let us see where he takes us yet this morning. If 
you would, read with me Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. There our Lord says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of our God. Well, should we judge? Does this passage truly forbid all of it? Does it just forbid some of it? What should we glean from this? Let's pull just three things out of here. First, when you judge, you should be apprehensive. When you judge, you should be very, very apprehensive. Let's get the first thing out of the way first. Although Jesus uses universal language here, he quite clearly doesn't mean for it to be taken universally. He's not forbidding us to judge anywhere, anytime, about anything. People want to believe that he is, or at least they speak like he means it that way, because they like the idea of not being judged. But that particular position just never, ever holds. The idea of not judging people for certain things always sort of degrades into a judgment of itself. And, and we have one of the greatest test cases in the past 30 years in our midst when it comes to sexual issues. And we can even track it through things like sitcoms and NBC sitcoms. So you can go and watch Seinfeld. And Seinfeld, in the mid-90s, was big on saying, not that there's anything wrong with that. So they would, they would say something about homosexuality, and then they would say, hey, we're not making a judgment about it. We're not saying good or bad. There's, just, there's not anything. We shouldn't, shouldn't make a judgment about it. Then in the early 2000s, you've got friends. And friends didn't say that we can't make judgments on it. They were actively portraying it as good. And then later on in the 2000s, you have Parks and Rec that go out of their way to make well, characterizations about Christian stances on gay and lesbian people to make us sound like we're absolutely ridiculous. To the place where we are now where if people just in professional sports, for instance, don't want to wear a rainbow-colored jersey because of what it symbolizes, they are castigated as bigots and judgments are made against them. It never holds. What they tell you not to judge today is what they're going to judge you for tomorrow. But it also never holds because people end up having personal problems with it. Non-judgment is fine, not only in, in areas of sexual morality, but, but in all cases, we can't live our lives without judging people. It's perfectly fine until somebody does something bad to you, and then you want justice. You want somebody somewhere to make a judgment about this, for, for you to hear they shouldn't have done that. We want bad actions, hurtful words, sinful dispositions to be at least noted as such. And we push for legislation on this. Almost all of our legislation, not all of it, but the vast majority of our legislation is about morality. This is good, this is wrong, don't do this or we will punish you. But we should admit, Jesus was, frankly, fairly radical, not just for his day and age, but even for ours. So maybe he meant it. But this becomes hard to square with what Jesus teaches everywhere. 
In Matthew 18, he is going to tell the church that they are to collectively come together, and when issues arise that can't be dealt with in a private manner that come before them, they are to make judgments about whether or not this person should be in their midst at all. Jesus himself talks to the churches in the book of Revelation and says, the things that that you are surrounding yourself with, the doctrines that you believe, the people that you're in agreement with, and even the people in your midst, you need to be careful about them. You need to make judgments about their goodness or not because otherwise I will remove your lampstand. Even in the sermon itself, we're coming up on a passage about tree and fruit, which we will talk about even later today, where it's quite clear that you are to make judgments about the quality of the characters that surround you. And even here, in this very passage, it's quite clear that judgment is used. The speck isn't good and ought to be removed. There are dogs and there are pigs. Aphorisms like this, these short, pithy, little, memorable statements are always open to misunderstanding and to be misinterpreted. So we need to be clear on what's going on here. And I think the case here is that it's easy to misinterpret this as though he means you're never to judge. I just don't think that that's the case. I think what he is getting at is that in the very first place, we need to get rid of any overly critical attitudes we might have. So that when you judge, you should be really, really apprehensive about making any judgments at all. You should, you should be really, the first, the first rule of this club is do not judge. That's why he says it as strongly as he does. The very first thing that ought to come to your mind is, I'm about to be critical, I'm about to make a judgment, I should stop now. Judging unnecessarily is an easy trap to fall into, so you just shouldn't do it. You should be forced into it. This summer, I'm going to be 43 years old. In the first 41 years of my life, I never lost a wallet. In the past two years, I've lost two of them. Now, the second, the first time was clearly my fault. I left it lying on the self-checkout thing at Walmart or at at Meijer, and um, even though Myers a step up from Walmart, that thing was gone in like two minutes. Somebody had a nice day there. Um, probably bad for them in judgment, but nevertheless, a good day that day. This last one was just a free, I, I had it in the stroller and I hit a bump and it must have popped out. I don't know, it was like somebody magicked it out of my stroller. When I, when I got back, it was gone. And so you do all the things that you've got to do. You cancel credit cards, got to go get a new license. Our Secretary of State might be a very lovely woman but no one wants to go to her office. No, no one's like, it's Thursday afternoon, I don't have much to do, I'm gonna go in and get down on that sweet Secretary of State office action. Like, no one wants to go there. The only time you go there is when you have to go there. No one sitting in that office was like, I'm so happy to be here, I've got nowhere else to be. Like, I could be anywhere else and be happier than I am right now. And actually, it's much better than it used to be. Kudos to the Secretary of State for making that place so much better. But nevertheless, no one actually wants to be there. You only go there because you have to. That's the same way it ought to be when it comes to judging. You don't just show up there. You're not there because it's fun. You're not there because you're happy to be there. You're not there voluntarily. You should be forced into it. You should be incredibly apprehensive about entering into any kind of judgment. But to be honest, that's rarely how we are. Many of us jump at the chance to judge others. 
even and especially in the strongest meaning of the word judge. This word can also be simply condemn. The most typical image that people use in their, their judging of other people is indeed the passage that's going to come later in the tree and the fruit. They'll talk about, well, I don't, the fruit that people have, it doesn't accord with the gospel. They will talk as though they're legitimately critiquing people solely because they can talk about fruit, as though the only thing Jesus ever said about critiquing and judging people happens in chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, as though Jesus never said what he says in chapter 7, verse 1. It's wrong. It is wrong to be overly critical of people. If you ever watch cooking shows, if you watch People who, who do spotlights on like excellent chefs, they will, they will go to the market and the one thing that you get from all of these people is it's not so much their own specific talent, although they've got a lot of talent, they always talk about the quality of the ingredients that they're getting. So they'll go to the market, they're smelling fish, they're poking fruit, they're like, that is the best looking endive I've ever seen. And, and you're like, that's all ridiculous, right? Like they're rejecting it for the, the smallest flaw. And, and so many people in the church act like they are the three-star Michelin chefs of, of our fruit. And they want to inspect every little inch and every ounce and every part of everything that you've ever done to see whether or not you're qualified to be in the kingdom. I don't think, I don't think their fruit quite matches. I think that they show a deficiency in the Spirit of God. I don't think they're producing enough. I don't think it's, it's quite ripe. I don't think that it's, it's bruise-free. I think that it's flawed in some way. I think that we, we, should, just, we should reject the tree because the fruit just doesn't seem to be what I think it ought to be. Jesus speaks very clear words to us. You need to stop. This is not his way. It is not the way it's supposed to be in the church. We indeed must judge, but we have to be incredibly slow to get into it. And when we do, we are forced there and we handle it with mercy. Jesus warns. He says, the measure that you use will be used for you. The, the kind of judgments that you make are going to be passed back to you. It sounds a lot like what he says about forgiveness. That if you are unwilling to forgive people, if you are going to hold it over them, why would God treat you any differently? If you think that other people should be held to a higher standard than you, God will hold you to your own standard. So if you want to go around and inspect everyone's life with a microscope, if you want to inspect it to, to be of the highest perfection and caliber, then realize that God will do exactly the same for you. A God who sees better, who knows deeper, and from whom no evil thought or wicked intention can be withheld. And you ought to ask yourself very, very clearly and carefully, is that what I want? Because if it's not, stop judging. Secondly, when you judge, you should be reflective. I don't mean wearing one of those bike vests that makes sure that people can see you at night, though it makes you some sort of official judge or something like that. But you need to be inspecting your own life. You need to be careful about what you are saying. Jesus quite clearly doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever judge, and he gives this beautiful, brilliant, and poignant illustration of how to go about judging people, of how we ought to handle it. And using this illustration of eyes and logs and specks, 
His point is to show us how silly we seem when we want to go forward and judge others, to even to help others, when we haven't been introspective in our own lives, when we haven't looked at all of our flaws and all of our deficiencies. It's ridiculous because our sins are usually larger than we think. We think of the logs in our eyes as but, but blips, Nothing important, and we can deal with it, but that speck in my brother's eye is really the nasty thing. We tend to underestimate the size of our own sin, and therefore we also overestimate the size of our neighbor's sin. It's a speck here, but it's a really important speck to us that we need to remove. Jesus does know speck is a problem. Speck should be removed, but a log tends to be more of a problem for any of a number of reasons. Therefore, we're also ridiculously unequipped to help them deal with their problem. I don't want any of you getting anywhere near my eyes. I hate the idea of anything being in my eyes. If if I didn't have, by God's grace, really good vision, there's no way I would wear a contact. I don't know how people can do that weird voodoo thing, okay? That's I can't watch my wife put them in because it grosses me out. I don't want any of you anywhere near me, but I certainly certainly don't want you poking around my face when you can't see. No one is asking for your help. No one is asking for somebody with a log in their eye to come and do any sort of thing around their face at all, especially not their eyes. The whole situation is ridiculous. The symbolism is helpful and illustrative. Your blindness is a spiritual blindness. You can't see the thing that's directly in front of your face. Literally, you can't see the thing that's blocking everything else from your vision. You're either spiritually blind or you're spiritually dumb to think that your branch, which you perhaps can clearly see, isn't a bigger deal. And that actually, the person who needs the help is the person with the log from the person with the speck, not the other way around. And there are probably people in here that are thinking this is good because people in here can be really judgmental and they need to talk into. The problem is people who are rude, ignorant and mean and hypocritical and super critical, Jesus is talking about them. And the answer is yes, Jesus is talking about them and they could just very well be you. I'm sure that in this illustration, the guy with the log in his eye somehow, someway, didn't know that he had a log in his eye. No one thinks that this is them until it is. We see humor in this. And it's made to look, it's meant to make us look ridiculous when we do this kind of thing. Phineas Gage, many of you know the name, was an industrial construction worker in the mid-1800s. And he had a very strange accident. A horrible accident. Steel rod went right through his head. Literally piercing his brain. But he didn't die. They were able to cut the steel rod, remove it, went on to live a life. The reason why he's famous is because it destroyed his left frontal lobe and it changed his personality completely, just completely. Can you imagine Phineas Gage with that bar stuck through his head coming up to you and being like, I don't know if you've got something in your teeth, right? And saying, yeah, yeah, thanks, Phineas, because something being stuck in my face is really embarrassing, right? Like, the whole... The whole picture is ridiculous. And the reason why Jesus paints it this way is not because it's realistic, 
but only because it's realistic as to how you look when you don't actively seek to remove your log first. When you're not reflective on your own life, you're not introspective on your own failures. You are the joke. Jesus also brings out that big gun of saying, you're a hypocrite. You're just like all the others. I told you not to be a hypocrite like those who fast and make their faces look worse than they are, who, who pray and make sure that everyone can talk to them about how great their and eloquent their prayers are and who give in such a way that everyone knows how generous they are. You're just like them. You want to appear serious about the kingdom of God. You want to really, really appear serious, like you're trying to help other people. Say, really, friend, that speck in your eye is bad. It's not healthy for you. It's not good. It's got to be grating on you. Jesus wants you to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. He wants you to be complete and holy. That speck is keeping you from it. Friend, you better be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And in truth, you're a hypocrite because you're only serious when it comes to other people's sin. You don't say those things to yourself. You don't think about how you embody those exact same traits. You're a hypocrite. You appear to be very holy and very serious, and you're none of it. This doesn't mean, though, that we leave our neighbor in distress. He doesn't say that we're not to judge, and he doesn't say that we're not to help. But he does say that before you even begin to engage in something like that, you've got to put a mirror Instead of looking at the speck in your neighbor's eye, you should place a mirror there and see what your life looks like. And when you have removed the log, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's good that you want to take the speck out. It is, it is a right thing to do, and you ought to do it. But you've got to be reflective on your life first. You've got to think about who you are and what you've done yourself. This calls for us to be vigilant and to pull absolutely no punches when it comes to our own lives. To give a somewhat practical like flowchart, this is not typically the things that people do when they're going to be critical. It usually just comes flying out of their, their mouths. But if you do have a chance to stop and think about it, say, am I about to be critical of somebody? The first stop is stop. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. The very next thing that Jesus says is, Look at yourself first. Don't do it. Look at yourself first. Make sure that you aren't guilty of exactly the same things that you want to hold other people accountable for. Clean up your, home, your own life first. If you must be critical, then we can go on to point three. And that is when you judge, you should be defensive. When you judge, you should be defensive. There is an innocence that sort of accords with ignorance. If you were going to give a phone to a child, and that child spikes it on the ground, it really matters how old that child is before you can even get close to being angry at them. If you gave your phone to a one-year-old, and that one-year-old completely lacks the ability to know how expensive, how fragile, how useful that is in your life, and they throw it on the ground, friend, the fault is not with the child, the fault is with you. If they're older, that sort of, sort of calculus changes. Jesus has called us 
to not just be simple, ignorant non-judgers, to just say, hey, blithely, we ought to think that everything's going to be fine, everything's going to work out okay, nothing bad's going to happen, nothing matters enough for me to actually make a judgment about something. Jesus will tell us that we are to be innocent as doves, but we are to be wise as serpents. You might want to hear that as craftier than the serpent. Here Jesus has a little saying about dogs and pigs. Both were universally despised by the Jews. They were unclean animals. They were not held up as pets, not fun animals to have around or as comforters. They are symbolic of everyone who is outside the kingdom, everyone who doesn't belong, sinners and unrepentant lovers of the things of this world. Those are dogs and those are pigs. It is the language of condemnation. They don't belong and they're not saved. They are Canaanites. They are foreign people who who are not knowing the goodness and the kindness of God, especially the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, They do not know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are outside. So what do we do with these images of holy things and pearls? The holy things are usually those things that belong to the kingdom. In the Old Testament, It was wrapped up quite a bit with the things of the temple and the tabernacle and the offering of sacrifices, the bread, the altars and the tables, the utensils and the offerings, even the place where the tabernacle would sit while it was moving around and then eventually where the temple is was to be considered holy. And then the people who would come with their offerings should be holy. The people who were there offering the offerings should be holy. The image of the pearl is a little harder to pin down, quite obviously, Jesus means something that is beautiful and rare, but it is also linked with the kingdom. Famously, a parable in Matthew 13, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And in the end, because of all of that, I think that what Jesus is saying is we must look at the giving to those who are not belonging to the church, to those who are not truly saved, to pigs and to dogs, when we give them the things of the kingdom, know exactly what they're going to do with those things. They're going to ruin them, they're going to trample them, and they are going to waste them. What happens when people, under the guise of mercy and love, and under the pressure to please people in the world, under the weight of fame and reputation, are completely and utterly incapable of making judgments about those around them, especially in the most important matters. Jesus, I think, here says it clearly. You have given the things of the kingdom to those who do not care or understand it. Dogs do not care about the holiness of the meat or the bread. They just consume Pigs do not care for the beauty and the fragility of pearls. They just trample. And the church has a problem, which it will always have, because you can't always separate out the wheat and the tares, of leaders who have nonstop racked up moral and ethical failures in leadership, doctrinal errors that go completely unchecked by the people who ought to be checking them. Men and women who turn grace into licentiousness, who abuse power, who sexually abuse people, who are greedy and acidic, 
who pervert good doctrine. We have men like this everywhere. Stories about their influence continue to be proliferated around the world. Time wouldn't give us to even talk about the men in the past 10 years who have fallen like this. Morally shown themselves unfit. Nor would time allow us to speak of all the timid men across all the churches in the world who refuse to preach good doctrine because they don't want people to think, well, I'm being judgmental or I'm being too difficult. In the end, as people in the church are unwilling to call them into account, especially for those who have a great deal of influence, they think of them almost as too important to fail. They seek to cover up the truth. They hand the kingdom over to pigs and dogs who can do nothing but trample it underfoot. Two documentaries out just now about these things. Happy Shiny People, about the Duggars, their TV show, and the Gothard Ministries, their spiritual and physical abuse and the covering up of that same abuse. A Secrets of Hillsong, about how that incredibly influential Australian church covered up the gross moral failure of its founder. And what happens? What happens when the world sees these things? They mock, they laugh at the kingdom of God and the people of the kingdom. They laugh at the naivete of people who would even ever buy into such stupid fairy tales. They laugh and they see not only are they just like us, but these people are worse than us. They show that the kingdom is just like the rest of the stuff of the world, trampled down, broken, destroyed like moth-ridden and rust-ruined treasures of the world. It is no longer holy and it's no longer precious. And who's at fault? It's easy to think that the world is at fault for the mockery, for their unbelief. But Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem here with the dogs acting like dogs and with the pigs acting like pigs. His problem is with people who handed the good things over to them in the first place. The problem isn't the people who have no understanding of the brilliance the wonder, the glory of the kingdom of God, the precious nature of the things of the kingdom. They're going to ruin it because they ruin things. The fault is the people who didn't care enough about that to defend it, who didn't care enough about those precious things, those good things, to hold everyone accountable to it. And it's not just a problem of leadership as though the leaders are the only ones that fail. It is a problem of leadership when people in the church in their own minor way trample on the good things without ever having somebody come up to them and say, brother, sister, you cannot do this. In a myriad of small ways, our inability to judge because we're worried about what the world's going to think, we're worried about people thinking we're judgmental, whatever the reason is, our inability to do it is handing over the things of the kingdom to people who have no right handling them. When we judge, our judgments are there to defend the beauty and the preciousness of the things of the kingdom of God. 
they are not there. Our judgments should not be used to simply hold up our own opinions or to, to make sure that we're defending our own idiosyncratic opinions of what we consider to be vital and important. That's not what our judgments are to be used for. We defend what is most precious and most vital. And notice the last thing that Jesus says here. So many people let these judgments go and they refuse to hold others accountable because they think that, well, it's going to drag the name of the church. They think that we're going to scare people away. That it's, it's, it's going to end up harming the rest of us somehow. We'll lose influence or we'll, we'll hemorrhage people when they find out what's going on. And we, if we just keep it quiet, it'll be better. If we just ignore it, it'll go away. But Jesus says, friend, don't ever think that the pigs and the dogs are going to stop with the things of the kingdom and not turn on you. They always come for you. Use your judgment to defend those things that Scripture makes clear and obvious, not just because it's good for the things of the kingdom, although it really truly is, but because as so many things that Jesus says, it's good for you. So what do we judge and when do we judge it and what do we let go? Very briefly, we judge those things on which Scripture is very, very clear. This goes back to that apprehensive thing. We've got, to be, we've got to know that we are standing on the ground of Scripture when we make any sort of judgments like this. In doctrine, that would be on the Trinity, on Christology, the nuts and bolts of our salvation. In practice, it is those things of which Scripture is very, very clear, whether it's the immorality of certain sexual practices, whether it's abuse, murder, theft, when Scripture is incredibly clear that this is unacceptable, there and there alone can we speak. And we ought to speak. But we have to be pressed into it. Yet outside of what Scripture makes clear, be incredibly apprehensive about making judgments on things. Be very, very slow to judge, friends. Be filled with mercy Assume that, that you don't know everything. Assume that people have a reason for being how they are. Assume that they're working through something. Assume that the Spirit of God is in them. Be loving people and assume the best in others. And always, always remember that the Lord Christ is more merciful than you realize and more gracious than you can comprehend. We always end here because that's what we're left with. We're left always needing forgiveness. We're left always needing pardon and mercy from God. And the good news is that he will give it. And Jesus can forgive the hypocrites and those who are judgmental, the, the weak and the sinful and the ignorant. He, he's happy to do that. He is gentle and kind with the wayward. And you might say, yeah, but, but even in this passage... There are dogs and there are pigs. And that is strong language. That is language stronger than Jesus has used anywhere in the sermon, including that word hypocrite. Those people seem to be out, incapable of being saved. Yet even there, Jesus can save these as well. Matthew 15. 
passage we'll get to in time. We hear the following story from Matthew about Jesus. Jesus withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Those verses set up for us two conflicting expectations. She's a Canaanite. She's outside the kingdom. Those were people who should have been placed under the ban and frankly should have been wiped off the face of the earth. She's outside of the knowledge of the kingdom of God. She's outside of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the God of Israel. And yet, the words that she speaks are the very words that we expect Jesus to respond to, which everywhere else in the Gospel of Matthew, he responds to. Matthew goes on. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. We're just sick of hearing this woman. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, that is incredibly harsh language. Incredibly harsh. This woman's not even begging for herself, begging for the life of her child. And Jesus is really clear. You're a dog. You have no share in the kingdom of God. You have no share in the kingdom of heaven. You're completely and utterly outside. And in what I can tell, this woman's response is the only time, I think purposely, I don't think Jesus got bested, but the only time that anyone in the gospel anywhere has ever bested Jesus in anything. She says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Okay, I'm a dog, fine. There has to be mercy left for me. Now, not only is that brilliant, I think Jesus was leading her there, but immediately Jesus changes. He says to her, Oh, woman. She's not a dog anymore. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus has mercy enough for you. The crumbs from the table on which he eats are so magnificent and wonderful and good, you would need nothing else. And no three-star Michelin chef can ever make you something better. His mercy is there for you. His grace is kind enough for you. Trust him. Believe his actions and his words. Get rid of that, that overly critical spirit. Get rid of the need for everything to be the way you want it to be and realize that Jesus has a better way for you in life. Judge not, lest you be judged. Let us pray.
Father, please forgive our critical spirits. We love our own way, and far too often we conflate our own way with yours. We think that we're right and are slow to believe that we could even possibly be wrong. Some of us are also slow to believe what you have written. We're so leery of judgment, we do not stand up and fight for what is good and right. Give us wisdom, courage, humility, and patience. And above all these, give us faith in Jesus that we might be forgiven and so we might also forgive others. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response, The Lion of Judah.